Before we um, continue our study on the church, this morning, this, this is kind of part three of the family of God. The church um, is the family of God. Um, that is her heritage. I want to look at one more week as regards uh, our heritage as the church as we uh, move on next week to the nuts and bolts of what that means. So let me open in prayer, and we'll use as our launching point uh, back where we were last week, First Peter 2. Father, thank you for this new day. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for the gift of grace given to us in Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for the church. Pray that you will prepare um, your people throughout the county as they prepare to come in this next hour for worship, that uh, we will worship in spirit and truth for the, for the glory of your name. And may you edify us by way of your word today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. First Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, We've been reminded in our last two studies, I'm reading the language here of 1 Peter, reading the language um, in Ephesians that... Um, Israel was always intended to be the prefigurement, to be the anticipation, to be the full expression of the people of God um, known as the church. We read here, um, you who were once outside of citizenry from Israel are now citizens of God's true Israel. So that, that Old Testament language, you know, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's bride, is all now applied to the church, teaching us that, that the church is indeed the consummate, the, the consummated expression of the people of God throughout time. The consummate reality of all that God promised to Israel is now shown and seen in and through the new Israel of God. And when we we speak of being new, we're talking about a new phase of existence. A new phase of existence. That is a multi-ethnic, multinational people that were promised long, long ago. 
That is, as we said, we use the phrase, um, the church is to Israel what the butterfly is to the caterpillar. It's not distinct from Israel. The church, she's not distinct from Israel, but she is the fulfillment of all that God had promised Israel to be. She's a temple. Not made of stones and mortar, but made of people. The temple of the living God. We are living what? Living what? Stones. Living stones. So that seed has blossomed. The butterfly has launched from its cocoon. And we therefore must understand that we have a very long family line. This is what we're after. Now, as the old uh, children's Sunday school song goes, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and and so are you. Now, although that song may may bring to mind um, images of raising your hands and kicking out your feet and marching or whatever you do there, um, the song's theology is undeniably biblical. In Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, the Apostle Paul explains um, that Abraham is indeed the father of us all. As new covenant believers, we've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the finished work of Christ alone. As an old covenant believer, Abraham, long, long ago, the father of Israel, was justified by grace alone. He was justified by faith. By grace through faith alone, because of the future work of Christ alone, Abraham stood on the promised salvation of God by way of his Messiah. By faith, the Messiah who has come. And we also stand on the promised salvation of God's Messiah who has come. Father Abraham. So true believers in the Old Testament were saved in the same way true believers are saved in the New Testament by faith and faith alone. Way back in Genesis 15, verse 6, we read, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Romans 4 tells us that that was prior to him receiving the sign of circumcision, sign of the covenant, prior to his circumcision. So God's true Israel is faithful Israel, and only faithful Israel inherits the promises of God. And that is because they have faith, they have trust in the only true faithful Israelite who has ever lived, and that is Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God. He's true Israel. Therefore, anyone who is in him is a true Israelite indeed. So, it is a matter of promises pledged under the old covenant. It is a matter of promises fulfilled in the new. Therefore, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, notice, for what promises? All. All means... All. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. 
Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now, beloved, all of this is very important as we look at our heritage as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because some of you, I know this to be true, some of you have come up under teaching that that has attempted to draw a line of demarcation between Israel and the church. Some have been taught that the church is is a parenthesis. Some of you have been taught that the church is an afterthought, that the church is an addition in the plan of God. And some of you have been taught that God's primary concern is with ethnic Israel. Whereas he takes this brief moment in time to establish the church separate from Israel. That is why some Christians, when speaking of Jews, uh, will refer to them almost with with this tone of admiration, um, with, with this reverential whisper, and they'll say, those are God's people. You experience that? Have you, perhaps you've done that. Rather than understanding the church as being Israel fulfilled. In Philippians 3, we read that the church is referred to as the true what? The true circumcision. Sign of the covenant given to Israel. Now, that is not to conclude, and I think this is what you were pointing out last week, Ray. That is not to conclude that God has finalized his dealing with ethnic Jewish people. Amen? Romans 9, 10, and 11 tell us that. However, however, this is big however with a capital H, even a revival of great proportions of ethnic Jewish people will not be an entrance for them into something altogether new for them. Okay? Because Romans 11 talks about Gentile believers being grafted into whose tree? Israel's tree. Okay? So we've been grafted in. We are the fulfillment of what God promised to our forefathers. Right? We're not separate from them. We've been grafted into Israel's tree. So any Jew who comes to faith in Jesus Christ from Paul's day to this day, it's, gonna, it's nothing new. It's all part of God's original plan. Amen? It's not something altogether different. That is to say that the believing church will never be separated from its root. The church of Jesus Christ will never be separated from her root, Jewish Israel. And if the church ever thinks that she is separate from ethnic Israel, or that she, in fact, replaces Israel, we're told, the scripture tells us, that she's become proud and arrogant. Romans chapter 11, verses 18 and 20. That is to say, that is why we say, that the church is the fulfillment of Israel, not the replacement of Israel. Amen? 
God has one plan. You're not separate from God's plan, from Israel. We're grafted into the tree. Now, as as mentioned last time, Jesus uses the word church um, only twice in the Gospels. So the question is, if she is indeed the object of his affection, which we know that she is, why does he hardly mention her by name? Again, the answer to that question is because he did not regard the church as something radically disassociated with or different from what came before her. This is his ongoing plan. So when he announced, I will build my church, he was not introducing something altogether different, not altogether distinct or separate from the old covenant people of God, that is the nation of Israel. So the, 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 the church that he promised to build, again, must not be understood as the inauguration of something altogether new in God's program. So if this has been your thinking of the past, you need to let the the, the Word of God wash that away. Amen? She is the church in substantial continuity with Old Covenant Israel. She's blossomed. So, turn, if you will, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and so on. Now, Jesus here established a critical foundational role for Peter. He changed his name from from Simon to Peter, Petros, Rock. And he says here, in the formation of the church, you, or you rather, Peter, are part of the formation of my church, okay? Now, this has nothing to do with, with pat, the papal office. That's man-made nonsense as regards Peter. So here, the Lord is saying that as a representative apostle, he serves Peter as a foundational rock. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, what do we read? that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles, the prophets. Jesus being the cornerstone. So Peter declares in 1 Peter 2 that all believers now have become living stones by virtue of their association with Christ who is the cornerstone. So we see how all this ties together. Beautiful, beautiful picture. But Jesus calls Peter a rock in its formation. Jesus, the cornerstone, Peter, a rock in the formation of this building of a people. And as as a side note, it's interesting, it's interesting. Um, Down in verse 23, when Peter says, Jesus must not go to the cross, 
Okay? It's interesting, he's not called there a foundation rock, but a stumbling block. It's interesting. So we're reminded here in the words of Jesus of the fulfillment of something that was already foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Okay? What happens here in Caesarea Philippi is the fulfillment of something that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And there's another individual whose name the Lord changed. Here it's Simon, who's renamed Peter. And there's an Old Testament figure who, who comes to mind. We've already mentioned him. And it's because of the obvious parallels between this historical event that we just read and an event that, that took place 2,000 years earlier. Genesis 17. Abram is renamed Abraham, father of a multitude. Genesis 17.5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So what what is in view here in, in both accounts is the establishment of the people of God. Both accounts. A people linked to one particular individual established first as an ethnic people, there were no Jews before Abraham. Amen? God made them. And then that would continue and multiply into nations of people. Okay, you follow me? Nations of people. So we see Abraham is the first, Peter is the second, and in both situations, God changes their names to symbolize the, the very crucial function that they will play in the outworking of this one great grand plan. See how the Bible all fits together? It's not two separate stories. It's one grand narrative. One. And incidentally, Peter is not the first to be referred to as a rock. Guess who's first referred to as a rock? Abraham. Well, as human beings go. Thank you. Listen to Isaiah 51, verse 1. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, referred to as the rock. He's likened to a rock to signify God's old covenant people, Israel, out of whom they were hewn, Peter renamed rock, to signify God's new covenant people, the church. Is this a matter of design? Or is this a coincidence? Anybody? (laughs) 
Anybody? Anybody? Who's that guy? Teacher in Bueller. Anybody? In Matthew 3, John the Baptist said this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That's no less than a fulfillment of Jesus' words, and I will build my church. John goes on to say in Matthew 3, verse 10, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, that is to say, just as the, as the kingdom is imminent, so is judgment, as John came out preaching. The coming of one implies the other. The coming of the kingdom implies judgment, which is at hand. Judgment would fall upon apostate national Israel. Judgment would fall upon apostate national Israel. And that is shown in 70 AD when the temple is wiped out, raised to the ground as Jesus said it would be. But blessing comes upon his true Israel. His true Israel. Blessings flow. So God was building, and God is building a house of living stones. Amen? And amen. Speaking of houses, in 2 Samuel 7, David is relaxing in his beautiful house of what? Cedar. And as he relaxes with rest all around him, all the surrounding countries, all of his enemies, he's given rest, he's at home in a house of cedar, and he says, as I live in a house of cedar, the Lord dwells in a tent. I am going to build the Lord a house. Nathan says, do as you please. But then the Lord reveals to Nathan, wait on tiger. Hold on cowboy. David's going to do what for me? No, you go tell David, no. I'm going to build the house. Okay? See this? I'm going to build the house. So God responds, no, David won't, but I will build the house. And then he gives four promises. 2 Samuel 7. Number one, that one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, will reign as king. Okay, He will reign as king over whose people? My people, says the Lord. Number two, this kingly descendant of yours, he will be my own son. That's number two. And then number three, and guess what? He will build a house for me. And then number four, That house, that kingdom, that throne, that one, how long will it stand? Forever. Forever. Now, even Jewish students of the Old Testament have understood that God was not ultimately, at this point in time, referring to King Solomon, who would build a temple. But someone infinitely greater than him that is Messiah. So my son will reign forever. He will build my house, and that house will endure forever. Now, Peter's confession in Matthew 16 that we just read 
is the fulfillment of all that God promised to Israel there in 2 Samuel 7. The inspired words that came out of Peter's mouth. Remember what the Lord said? The Father revealed this to you. Peter didn't come up with this. This was a confession of what God had promised to David. 2 Samuel 7. Notice first, Peter confesses that Jesus is David's kingly descendant, right? You are the Christ, number one. Number two, Peter confesses that Jesus is the son of God. You are the Christ. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God, okay? So Peter confesses both of those. In response, Jesus says, I will build my what? My church. I will build my church. I will build my house. I will build my temple. And then number four, it will endure forever. Fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Now, if you're saying to me, hold on, cowboy, because look back at verse 14, 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So the, the Lord here pledged to discipline David's line in time. His physical offspring. And discipline indeed did become necessary for Israel and many of those kings. Amen? Indeed. Most of David's sons, according to the flesh, were not sons according to the promise, and they led the people of God into flagrant idolatry and sin. As a result, they were exiled as promised way back in Deuteronomy 28. But the exile did not mean that the Lord had broken his promise to never stop loving David and his kingly line. Remember that prophecy in Amos 9? We're told, we're promised there that David would be restored to the throne, right? It wasn't talking about literal David, not David himself, but a king from David's line. This king would also be disciplined, but not for his own sin. Get the picture? For the sin of his people. He will be chastened. So ultimately... Second Samuel, Second uh, uh, Samuel seven, it, it alludes to the justice that, m- that the Messiah would receive in behalf of the people. He'll be crushed, and then, having atoned for sin, he is installed as king forever. In Romans one, Paul servant 
of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. With whom, I should say, whom God, Romans 3, put forward as propitiation by his what? His blood. Jason, crushed to be received by faith. Faith. This is, the, this is the same one Abraham embraced by faith. The same one we embrace by faith. God's true Israel. Jesus. So the apple of God's eye was Israel. Amen? The apple of God's eye was Israel. He referred to them as his priesthood, as his chosen race, as a holy nation, as his flock, as his bride, a, a people uniquely defined as his own. Those titles of honor, those titles of privilege are now given to the church, his called out ones, his congregation, his assembly of people, his bride, his flock, his body. His body. A people for himself. You see your family tree? (laughs) It's a long line, huh? It's one big family, not two separate people. It is one welded together people. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, in them, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Old Testament prophet, serving you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Again, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Which means, whenever we read the Bible, beloved, whenever we preach from any Old Testament text, it requires first that we determine as clearly as we can how how the first hearers would have understood it, that's number one. That's what we try to do in any time we teach from the Old Testament. And then we must also place that meaning in the context of, of God's desi- designed flow of redemptive history. We must, because it's one big book. And, and the saving relationship that was always moving believers' hearts under the Old Covenant towards Christ, towards Jesus. 
Listen to Dennis Johnson. This is from his book, Him We Proclaim, Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures. Quote, Standing as we do, on this side of the watershed, constituted by Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and the bestowal of the Spirit, we hear the ancient history, the ancient law, wisdom, song, and prophecy that God spoke to his waiting people in a new and major key with a fuller orchestration than was possible until the beloved son arrived on this sin-sick earth to be and enact the Father's resounding yes to all the ancient promises. End of quote. So was then the forming of the church, God's new and improved plan? No. No. You know, you know, as though his, his plan for Israel failed? No. Not at all. We are a one people of God. Now let me close with a, a, a brilliant um, Old Testament foreshadowing that, that God gave to us with regard uh, to what he would do with the forming of Um, of his new covenant people. When God destroyed Jericho, right? Okay. He saves a very unlikely individual by the name of Rahab. A woman. Not only was she a woman, she was a Gentile woman. And not only was she a Gentile woman, she was a, a prostitute. And God, in His grace, saved her from destruction, not only physically, not only spiritually, but, but even socially. Okay, she went on to marry a man by the name of Selman from the tribe of Judah. They had a son by the name of Boaz who marries another Gentile by the name of Ruth, who's from Moab, and God referred to Moab as his wash basin. Boaz and Ruth have a great-grandson by the name of David, King David, in whose line comes Jesus, Savior of the world. The world. So Rahab's salvation was an anticipation of what God would one day accomplish in new Israel. For from that line would come God's true Israelite. And then Ruth's name shows up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So showing us that the history of God's revelation is a matter of progress.
all throughout the scriptures. Matter of progress. Not two people. Not two people. Always one people. Always one plan. So, redemptive history is the record of the new growing out of the out of the old. It's the flower coming up out of the bulb. That's what the Bible is. So a people, once not a people, are now the very people of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 10. So do you see the legacy? Do you see your heritage? It goes all the way back, not to Bethlehem, but to and beyond to Genesis 3 and God's promise in verse 15. Through the line of the woman, through, between you and the woman, I will set enmity. There will be enmity there. But there will come one. Through the line of the woman who will crush your head. And in the process, his heel shall be bruised. So do we regard the church with this kind of dignity? That's the question. Do we love the church as Christ loved the church? And in order to love the church as Christ loved the church, we have to see the church as Christ sees the church. It's a long line of people going way, way back. Amen? Amen.